places. Everyone. We're now broadcasting. Roll the tape in. Three, two. A new audio drama. Appaloosa Radio is where stories come alive. I Still Cherish, Helen Stanberry's Story, as read by Lindsay Beth Hummel. Chapter 3, Ralph The National Education Leadership Conference was the highlight of my career in education. 126 educators from around the country representing both public and private schools came together for four days in Rexburg, Idaho to discuss ways to improve instructional delivery. I was one of the four teachers selected to deliver the keynote talk. After my talk, the dean from a teacher's college in Nebraska asked me to join his college faculty. He offered a salary considerably more than I was now receiving in North Carolina. It would be an opportunity to teach teachers and to research to improve instruction. Additionally, the college operated on a schedule of four months shorter than my current assignment. That would have given me time to travel, something I knew I wanted to do more of. But it would have meant leaving my father. He said he needed me, and as he always said, my mother really needed me. I turned the offer down. Sometimes I feel regret at not accepting it. Then I remember a joke that one of my students once told me. You see, there was a famous piano tuner whose name was Mr. Opernockety. A well-known pianist asked Mr. Opernockety to tune his piano, and Mr. Opernockety happily did so. After a few weeks, the pianist called Mr. Opernockety and asked him to come again and tune his piano. Mr. Opernockety said, no, Opernockety only tunes once. No point in waiting for Mr. Opernockety, he only tunes once. Mama, don't allow no music play around here. Mama, don't allow no music play around here. Well, we don't care what Mama don't allow. We're gonna play a little music anyhow. Mama, don't allow no music play around here. Ralph Norris, my cousin and the driver for the trip, was, to my mind, a rather handsome young man. He often seemed like Errol Flynn jumping into the car without opening the door, climbing up on trees to get me a bird's nest that I fancied, and swimming out into the lake to retrieve my hat that had blown off. Regrettably, 
He was one of those handsome young men who believed that he was a handsome young man. Often, as he was driving, he would reach across the seat and touch me, not in a friendly cousin-to-cousin way. There was no doubt that his hands were prowling into forbidden territory. Sometimes, maybe more like often, his prowling hands did not bother me. In fact, his touch was rather pleasurable, and much more interesting than the scenery on some parts of the trip. All I had to do to stop it was to do a quick shiver and the hand would be withdrawn. The chaperone, Mr. Eggers, was in the narrow seat in the back, and the cord's front seats were luxuriously high. It would be difficult for him to see the prowling hand. Besides, once he had lit one of his cigars, he was in his own smoky world, oblivious to everything else. It was in the small, made-of-the-mist boat at Niagara Falls that I allowed Ralph's romantic advances to proceed beyond casual prowling. Mr. Egger said he utterly hated boats and refused to join us on the excursion, so he was not along. Before you board, they make you put on these rubber raincoats and boots. For some reason, my rubber coat stuck in my blouse and did not go all the way down. Ralph gentlemanly pulled it over my haunches. The touch stirred the deepest romantic urges in me, and I turned around, put my arms around his neck, and then kissed him. He was surprised, but not one to waste an opportunity. For the boat trip, we held hands and snuggled so close that our raincoats rustled in unison. I do not remember how many more times we kissed, but I believe it was somewhere between ten million and infinity. We exited the excursion still holding hands. However, social reality reemerged when we saw Mr. Eggers sitting on the dock. We both pretended nothing had happened. The next time we were left wholly alone without the chaperone was in Glacier National Park. Mr. Eggers had contracted some kind of stomach ailment and asked to be left back at the cabin to deal with his misery. I now know that the guided car trip through the National Park showed off many places of natural beauty, but to be honest, I don't remember any of them. I did notice that Ralph had a small freckle on his neck that I had not noticed before, and I gave it special detailed study. All the while, Ralph's hands prowled much more vigorously than before. We dawdled together, well after the official tour had ended. I was on the verge of inviting Ralph up to my cabin for the evening when the bolts of southern expectations struck me. It would never work. Never allowed to work. He was my cousin, the youngest son of my mother's brother. He was my father's employee. He was twelve years younger than me. I gave him a quick peck on the cheek and then rushed up to my own cabin and locked the door tight. I was keeping myself in, not keeping young Ralph out. The next day, Mr. Eggers was feeling better. He announced that we could proceed with the trip as originally planned. For the next week, I kept the prowling hands on their side of the car, using the coldest shivers that I could muster. After we left Seattle and began our drive down the Pacific coast, I permitted the prowling again. In fact, I rather enjoyed it. Besides, it was not his fault that he was a red-hot young male. It never became serious again until we sailed the 26 miles across the sea to the wonderful island of romance, Catalina Island. The trip on the white steamer was torture for Mr. Eggers. With each mile that we sailed, his seasickness grew worse. The very helpful porter tried every remedy he knew, but none worked. We decided to climb to the upper decks while Mr. Egger suffered below. I believe that there's something very magical about that little island. I stood close to Ralph and felt my urges growing. We went from holding hands to very heavy petting. Finally, a steward asked us to stop. We were in a public place and were beginning to embarrass other passengers. When we reached the tiny harbor, we arranged for Mr. Eggers to be transported to his hotel room. And then Ralph and I walked the beach in the town for hours, stopping every few steps for fervent kissing and other acts of affection. In truth, that was one of the happiest evenings of my entire life. However, we both knew the dreamy evening on the island of romance could not last. About nine o'clock, we headed to the hotel to check on Mr. Eggers. He was sitting outside in one of the hotel worker chairs, ignoring his cigar and his glass of whiskey. For the remainder of our trip across the country back to my North Carolina home, 
Mr. Eggers remained the very epitome of good health. He also became more watchful, never ceasing in his chaperone duties. Ralph Norris and I were never again left alone. brought considerable hardship to our town and to my father's many businesses the sawmills had slowed considerably during the depression nationally building instruction fell nearly 70 percent with the war construction stopped completely and my father's sawmills closed even if he wanted to operate them there was no labor to be had men were now either in the army or working in a defense industry plant worst of all the government closed all the railroad and appropriated its locomotives Without the sawmills and the railroad, there was no capital for the bank, so it closed too. The grocery store and the town's two restaurants followed. The movie theater's equipment was moved to Wilkesboro, and the building raised. Even the Masonic Lodge was disenrolled. The school that I taught at for my whole career also was closed. By 1946, the town that I knew and had loved was no more. My father always made considerable money by wildcatting. That is, he would drive up the narrow roads designed for wagons, pulled by mules, searching for, and then buying stands of uncut lumber. He always carried a big wad of cash so he could make a deal right on the spot. He once told me that he drove over 25,000 miles a year looking for timber in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. He could have hired lumber buyers, but he always preferred doing it himself. When the war came, everyone was issued gasoline rationing cards, severely limiting the amount of gasoline you could buy. Gas rationing ended my father's wildcat roving. His long jaunts through the woodlands were no more. Many men in the mountains hunted deer, bears, or raccoons. My father was never much for that kind of hunting. He preferred hunting expeditions that brought a monetary reward. I could tell that he missed being able to do it. During the war, my father moved us from our large home in Todd to a much smaller house inside the town of Boone. He had commercial property there that continued to provide a sustainable income. Our rural school was closed, and I was reassigned to teach at the school in Jefferson. Each morning, my father would drive me to the county line where a Jefferson school bus would load with children and me. I was not fond of the school to which they had assigned me. It was badly maintained, and it smelled of years of neglect. The teachers taught with slaps of a ruler or whips of switches. The school had a woman principal, the first I had ever worked for, who was more of a prison warden than an education leader. It was a dismal place. Wholly lacking in the joy of learning, almost none of its students graduated from high school. I seriously thought about quitting teaching and going to Atlanta to work in an aircraft factory. As always, my father would not hear talk of my leaving home. I had obligations, he said. Obligations to my mother. Obligations to him. My bleak wartime experience became even bleaker when I learned that Marine Lieutenant Ralph Norris was killed in action in the Pacific. When the war came, he volunteered as a Marine Corps pilot and had flown 32 missions before his plane was taken down by an enemy aircraft fire. I tried to find the island that he was attacking when he was killed, but it was too small for the maps in the college library.
After the war, my father transformed himself from lumber baron to real estate developer. His biggest project was a new golf course and lake along what had always been just called Cow Creek. I enjoyed working with my father during this phase of his life. I helped him design the projects, deciding where to run the streets and place the various home sites. I acquired a collection of magazines with house plans in them. I would design a lot to match the requirements of a specific house that I had seen in magazines. As my father's agents met with potential buyers, they would show them the plans for the house that I had identified. Nearly always, the house that I had selected would be the same one that the buyers would build on the property. It was also my idea to name the project Lake Wildwood Estates. I had remembered seeing the name on a sign someplace in Idaho. My father died in 1957, just shy of his 80th birthday. I moved my mother back to our big old house in Todd, yet there was no more town. To my delight, however, they decided to reopen the school. There was a new residential community near Mount Rogers, and Todd's school had lots of available classroom space. I was back in my familiar classroom in my school.
Appaloosa Springs Audio Theatre is a creative collaboration whose purpose is to write, produce, and share original story content through webcast radio experiences.